With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network, your home for hockey talk covering every team in the NHL. New episodes every Monday. Download at the hockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. This is the Leaf Sky Podcast. Here's your host, Jim Taddy. Hi, everybody. Welcome aboard Leaf Sky Episode 39. All set to sail. Jim Taddy with you for the next 40 minutes or so. Thank you, Mike Ross. Another fine introduction coming up on the podcast today. Bill Waters, former Leafs Assistant General Manager, and Gus Katsaros from McKeaton's Hockey and NBC Sports Edge to analyze how the Leafs get to a 3-1 series lead over the Montreal Canadiens. The last three games, of course, all Leaf wins and impressive. Before we get there, we've got some business to do, and that'll be this. It's playoff time. Big stakes, bigger promotions every day at the basketball playoffs. DraftKings will have $20,000 in total prizes up for grabs. The best part, it's free to get your shot at these daily cash prizes. DraftKings will be offering two free-to-play pools every day of the NBA playoffs, offering players a free shot at $20,000 in total prizes. Free shot, $20,000 total prizes. DraftKings free-to-play pools are easy to enter. Just download the DraftKings app, go to pools, and choose from a wide variety of free contests for an opportunity to win cash prizes. All you have to do is answer a handful of questions around what you think is going to happen during that day's basketball games. Track your results throughout the evening. Questions will range from which team will hit the most threes to which team will score first. DraftKings, as you know, is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the call to action. Download the top-rated DraftKings app now. Use the promo code THPN when you sign up and get your free shot at $20,000 in total prizes every day of the basketball playoffs. Head to DraftKings Pools page. Get your shot at huge cash prizes. The promo code is THPN for a limited time only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for full details. All right, to the hockey story, and the Leafs just charging through the Montreal Canadiens over the last three games. You want to circle the second period in each of the last three games and see how the Leafs go to work. In fact, post-game, after game four, Sheldon Keefe admitted the first period is, uh, you know, assessing the uh, opposition out, figuring what's going to work. Then in the second period, they go to work and basically take the hockey game from the Habs. And uh, lately, hang on in the third. Now, hang on is is a bit of a, a misnomer because if you look at the shot totals, it looks like the Leafs are just standing around watching the Habs trying to get back in the hockey game. But that's not really true. Uh, the Leafs are letting their goalie see the shot, and he comes up with a save. There's so many stories that we're going to develop over the next 40 minutes or so. Jack Campbell, stunning in goal, records a shutout in Game 4. The last Leaf goalie to do that, 1967, Game 2 of the Stanley Cup Final. His name, Johnny Bauer. The emergence of Alex Kerfoot in the number 2 center spot. Amazing 
You know, Nick Foligno has to go out. John Tavares has to be ripped out of the lineup for this to happen. Sprinkle in Galchenyuk and Nylander. My goodness, Nylander. Uh, you know, he's done something that's only been done once before in Maple Leaf history. 1939, Gordy Drillen scored a goal in the first five Leaf playoff games. And in 1986, Wendell Clark did it in the first four. Nylander has done it in the first four. Uh, that line is, is stupendous. And you knew that the Matthews-Marner combo up front uh, with Hyman would get a lot of attention, and it has. But to have a makeshift line drive this team forward, and that doesn't take away from what's happening on the third and fourth line, the defense. Watch T.J. Brody on a nightly basis. Little things. Does those little things. Uh, last night on a uh, power play by the Habs, he just delayed Josh Anderson enough that he canceled him out. Just little things. You'll look and go, who was that? That was Brody. Magnificent play. And the goaltender, Jack Campbell, gets better by the game. Looks so comfortable. You don't even worry about a lot of things with the Leafs. In fact, when you watch them play now, much like we detailed in the regular season, they have this air of confidence about them. They look like they know what to do at the right time, and they do it. And this is something you would not have said about previous incarnations of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Further analysis now. Here is Bill Waters, former Leafs assistant general manager. Okay, Bill, uh, three straight wins by the Leafs, each one of them different, and each one of them almost a better version of the one before, wasn't it? Yes, the the, the dominance seemed to grow with each win, and uh, I was impressed last night with the way they went about their business. I was even more impressed. In fact, I think there's a little palpitation about my heart when uh, Spezza and Thornton scored scored back-to-back goals. And, you know, you you have to acknowledge that the management uh, and the coaching staff took a chance on two guys that other teams weren't taking chances on. They were able to work out the right kind of financial remuneration, and all of a sudden you've got the experience and the support that these younger players need, and they, they have bought into it, needless to say, and they could have, well, Spetsa could have had two or three last night. Uh, I just felt that it was a vindication of uh, hard work on management's part. And I don't know whose idea it was to bring Thornton and Spetsa back, but it wasn't mine. And yeah. so I have to acknowledge the fact that it has made the Leafs a better team. That's The one thing that you can consistently say, Bill, is, is you like the roster and you like the flexibility of the roster. Uh, you know, you're talking there about a couple of older guys that have found the fountain of youth, and Spezza plays with such energy. It's remarkable to watch. But, but the key move for me is when you could have Kerfoot centering your second line, which is really your third option at center there after JT goes out and uh, Felino goes out, to have your number three option step in and make such a contribution. That is remarkable. Yeah, well, it is, and it's a credit to them, to the players. I mean, they've obviously kept themselves in shape, and their skill sets are beyond notification or advisement. They're both highly skilled players, and they play the game with a with an enthusiasm that rubs off on the younger players. And I just think it's a wonderful selection of talent, uh, however by accident or however by design, I'm taking it by design and acknowledging that it's, it's made the, te- the Leaf team a better team and they're going to have to be uh, better to beat the next opponent. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and, you know, when you go back to the, the memory of, of the exit uh, in the preliminary round against Columbus last summer, 
And if you had a checklist of things that had to be rectified, I think they're 100%. They've fixed everything, haven't they? Yes, they have. And they, they, the only reason that uh, last year I called Columbus, uh, I don't know if we called it publicly, but I think we did. And uh, it was because of the intimidation factor. And that's that's one of John Tortorella's uh, strongest assets. He just he punishes you, whether it's physically uh, from a, from a, an aggressive, uh, not fighting but just pounding standpoint, or the frustration of having somebody in your hip pocket the whole game. It's a it's something that you have to grow out of, uh, and you have to grow through. And I think to your point, the Leafs have done that with the addition of. Uh, the support from a physical standpoint, it's given them more confidence with the puck, and their team, their their possession team style that they have uh, worked at, and they control most of the game when they want to. Yeah, the depth of this roster is is stunning in this round, and it's uh, you know it may be a statement on Montreal, but you know they've done a lot to stop Matthews and Marner, and been really successful with that for the most part, but it's everybody else that's hurting them. Yeah, well, that's yeah. When you can get support right down to the fourth line, you know, it shows. You, and and I use the fourth time uh, fourth line loosely because the way Spezza is playing, certainly he's far from a fourth liner, but uh, he's also 37 years old, and uh, Thornton is 41, and they have to be handled in a fashion that doesn't uh, have them uh, worn out before the game starts. So that has been done, and they've been able to convert those two players into significant assets from a team standpoint. As you say, whether substitution at center or whether just playing on a fourth line, they're there and they compete and they make the Leafs uh, look like they've got a pretty good fourth line. And when they're played up, they do quite well. And uh, uh, as I said, uh, Spencer could have had at least a pair last night. You know, and it's remarkable, you know, that we're talking about a 3-1 series lead uh, because Carey Price has played as, as well as he can. And, and uh, you know, without that goaltending, this would be a blowout. Yeah, and, and that's that was the one uh, elephant in the room from the standpoint of how will the Leafs do against Montreal? It should have been how will the Leafs do against Carey Price? And they've done well. Carey Price has done well, too. But they've uh, the Leafs just have too much depth, as you pointed out in your comment, that to, to, to handle uh, the opportunities that come up when they come up, they're in. And uh, uh, Price has made a number of saves, and without his superb goaltending, I'm with you, they may have canceled the fourth game, particularly when there are no people at the games. They may have said, hey, we'll let you have it. But they're not. They're going to come out and try their best, and uh, that's what you do as professionals. But the Montreal hockey team is far from the great Montreal teams that dominated hockey in the 60s and early earlier on. Yeah, look, there's there's some moments on that Montreal roster, but what would bother me, and, and Galchenyuk for the Leafs, is the shining star, the prime example of when they drafted him, they had no centers, they tried him at center, it didn't work, they put him on the wing, uh, they got some good use out of him, but I, but I think, uh, you know, really destroyed him. And, he, and, he, and by the end of his tenure in Montreal, he was lost, and he bounced all the way around the league, and, and the Leafs salvaged him, and he's a very useful player in a specific role. Uh, when I look at Kotkaniemi, it, it's almost the same thing all over again. They just don't have the depth down the middle, and they, they keep burning out young prospects 
They just over, over all these years, it's remarkable that they haven't built down the middle. No, and, and you know they've had every opportunity. I shouldn't say every opportunity, but the the, the ones that they've drafted aren't ready, and yeah. that's the and and then when you start force feeding your prospects, and your prospects become your future, your present, and your past, you've got a problem, and that. I think Mark Bergevin is going to have to explain that to the ownership because I'm sure that they're wondering what's next. There's no centermen there, and they have to get them, and particularly a team with a, with a background of Jean Beliveau, Elmer Locke, Henri Richard, Jacques Lemaire. They had a lot of good center icemen. They all just kept coming. Yeah, I mean, you know, the center is the one position you have to ease into. I mean, I think you could force feed a winger but not a center. It's no. a tough one, isn't it? No, well, it's, it's, if you don't, I talked to Phil Esposito the other day and we were talking about teams and how you know when they've built the team. If they've got a solid goaltender, their defense is reasonably solid, but they've got a leader on the defense who can play some offense and put some points on the board. And the depth of their forwards, if they have depth on their forwards and the other two, they're in good shape. The Leafs, all of a sudden, with Soupy and Net, have fulfilled that, and they're ready to go. They're now in a position where they can win. They don't necessarily uh, take it for granted, but they've got the makeup with uh, Campbell playing goal the way he has of being able to win, and it'll be interesting to see as they go to the next challenge with Winnipeg, who have got all of that very comparable to the Leafs, perhaps more depth of forward, and that's stretching it a lot, but more because the least depth is, is, is admirable. But that's where Winnipeg's strength is in their goaltender. So the Leaf goaltender can't be much better. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, he plays well, the game. He's, he's done as well as he can. Four goals against, and uh, William Nylander scored as many as the whole Canadian team. Well, those are those are the two breaking stories for the Leafs. Nylander looks possessed out there, and Jack Campbell—that's the first Maple Leaf shutout in Mon- in Montreal against the Habs in the playoffs since Johnny Bauer in '67. That was, I think, it was Game Two of the Stanley Cup Final. That, that's a remarkable run, and both those guys are, are at their their pinnacle. When you watch Campbell play, he's he's just in control of everything, and when you watch Nylander play, he is searching for for the goal, and, and he gets it. Well, you know, they say, Jim, you mature as a professional athlete or an athlete in and around the age of 25. And if you appear mature at 22, that means you're going to be better at 25. But here is Nylander, who just into his 25th year. He's, he's starting to mature. And maturity was a big factor, I think, in his development. Well, Jack Campbell, he missed the 25. It's gone by him, but he certainly has matured. And uh, I, uh, I told you on this, on your show, that this guy doesn't have the background to play in the NHL playoffs. Well, that's fine. He's proven me quite wrong, and good for him. He, uh, he I, I've heard from people whose uh, opinion I, I, I cherish and I use that this guy is the real deal, and. The longer he plays and the more he plays, the real deal is going to become a very obvious phrase in the description of how Jack Campbell plays, will play, and has played. 
Just before we move on, Bill, um, your thoughts on the Oilers' demise against the Winnipeg Jets? Well, you know, that's a sad story because I, I think the next conflict in Edmonton is going to be one of the two of them going to management and saying, hey, in the case of Connor McDavid, he said six years, I think, uh, and he is just about ready to find another team because no help has come in six years. Nobody. They've got nobody that can play, I'm not saying with them, but can support them like another line. And their defense is in tatters. And this is all up to management. And so you have to go from the top to the bottom, from Bob Nicholson to Kenny Holland to the coach. And if the owner, who I don't know personally, but I would think he's a pretty sharp guy, he's going to say, hey, I need a complete recharge here. And if they don't, I, I, I think that you're going to get McDavid in a position where he's going to say, hey, I've tried my best. It's not working. I'm not getting the support that I was told I would get, and I want out. And when that happens, then you've really got a problem. So I think Edmonton has to dance very quickly and make moves that will bring in people that know what's required to support two superstars and a superstar on defense as well. They've got to look after the the three cherished products because when you analyze their franchise, it's not much more. Having not answered your question about what I thought of their demise uh, and uh, circling around with the kind of explanation that is necessary before you answer that, I was not surprised. I was told by people that the guy behind the bench doesn't know how to handle it, and I don't know him. I've met him, of course, but I just... There's there's too much missing there with the type of talent that they have at the top, particularly the recognition of not getting people to support them. And that's gone on for three years now. So I, I, I wasn't surprised. Um, one of the reasons I wasn't was that Winnipeg, Winnipeg played at a level that they were playing at midterm until the Leafs went into Winnipeg and tattooed them for a pair but I, I I wasn't that shocked, but four straight was a shock, and it's it's a discredit to a, an organization that uh, lived off the avails of a single superstar. But when you go back and look at Wayne Gretzky's team, have a look at who he had alongside him, who he had with him, who he had on defense, who he had in goal. All of those things were looked after in the draft. And unfortunately, in Edmonton's case, they've not looked after any. And that's their dilemma, is to get the guy who's the, allegedly and fairly the greatest player in the game. they got to do something for him. Okay, so take us through your, your past uh, front office experience. Uh, and obviously, you didn't have a team with Connor McDavid or, or Dreisaitl on it. But when you have that expectation and it flames out in, in four straight in the first round, what kind of a process happens there or should happen? Well, I, I think I think you have to get your two the guys you're talking to, Drysaddle and, and McDavid, in together or individually and just say, Look, here's what we have. We've got twenty five million uh room in our salary cap and we're going to try and 
Don't say try, because try isn't good enough anymore. But we're going to add players that will make our team better and consequently take some of the pressure off of you. Just bear with us for at least one year, and we will have something for you. Because when you really look at it, Jim, the worst trade you can make is the one that the player demands. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened with uh, Taylor Hall. Buffalo couldn't trade him to anybody but Boston. He stuck to his guns and didn't play, and now he's one of the Bruins' steadier players. And if you go as the general manager of the Edmonton Oilers, Kenny Holland says, well, I'm prepared to uh, trade you uh, uh, Connor McDavid. The smart general manager says, hold up, Kenny, you're not trading anybody. You've been told that he's not going to play for you. So let's, let's lower the criteria of what is required to get Connor McDavid out of Edmonton. He's already out of Edmonton. You are trying to get something for him. And I think if you phrase the trade, if in fact it ever comes to that, but it's a very difficult one to make. And that's something that both sides recognize, I would think. But uh, if I'm Connor McDavid, I'm not anxious to spend 10 years in Edmonton losing four straight in the first round. We should have, as a game, our best players in at least two or three rounds. And when the two, two best go down on the first round, you can blame them all you want, but there's a lot of help that they need that they haven't gotten. And, of course, if you ever trade them, you're, you're trading the best player in the deal, which is always a loser position, That's right? right. That's yeah. right. That's what <laughs> Sam Pollock used to always say. He said, I don't care what you think of the deal. He said, I know who the, who the best player is in the deal. I got him. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was the, that, and the I got him didn't take too long to come out of his mouth. No, 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 no. He put him on the first line of the best team in the world. Yeah. Now this guy, he must have had a, a calculator to understand when the guy was approaching his last shift of efficiency, because some of the people that San Paulo traded uh, expired shortly after in terms of their NHL career. They just didn't have much left in them. Yeah. Well, he did. He did a lot of trading American leaguers out of Nova Scotia who were not going to be, in Sam's estimation, and that's a pretty good measure, not going to be NHL top six players, uh, top six defensemen, let's say. Uh, they were going to be fringe guys and or playing on a poor team. And most of them worked out that way. And he'd give you, he gave Ralph, Ralph Backstrom up, uh, who was a popular player uh, in the Guy Lafleur deal. And, you know, he just... When you, when you have all the strength from the standpoint of power in the league, you can do a lot of things a lot better than what Edmonton has done. them, And that's where Edmonton has fallen flat in its face. Just haven't had any continuity from the great years that they had. And all of it went into Peter Potlington's pocket in the form of cash. Yeah, it's, uh, there's some great moments there, but also some, some missed opportunity. Bill, thanks very much. We'll talk uh, next week. And down the hall we go. Gus Katsaros is here from McKean's Hockey and NBC Sports Edge. All right, Gus. So these are all in layman's terms. Um, Saturday, good second period. Power play certainly helped out. Monday, great second period. Cycling, and that was the deciding factor in the game in the Hab zone. Some great plays, especially face-off plays. And then last night, uh, hitting the blue line at top speed. So transition plays. I mean, these are three different ways to win a hockey game. Uh, that, that's in layman's terms. That's the eye test. What did you see? 
So from the perspective of where um, they were actually measuring game results, um, yeah. you could see that it distinctly favors Toronto. I mean, we, we kind of see that everything is kind of aligned in that. Um, just before we get into any specific numbers, I feel that Montreal is playing a type of style like Toronto used to play when Randy Carlisle was the coach. So it's a lot of sit back, wait for a turnover, force turnovers at dangerous spots of the ice and try to uh, transition and get back um, and try to put the lease on their heels. So that's currently really not working for Montreal. You could see how much Toronto's actually taken the game to them. They have had full control of the puck for about 52% of the time. And I know that doesn't really sound like much, but from the perspective of how much time is handled um, and how that kind of translates into shots and scoring chances and, and offensive generation, 52% is a significant, significant number. Um, at the same time, they're getting 57% of the actual expected goals. Again, it doesn't sound like it, like something in the 50s, but 57% is a, a, a high percentage to have expected goals. So what this is telling us is um, while Montreal did a pretty decent job in the first couple of games trying to keep the Leafs to the outside, especially in game one and um, um, under kind of crazy circumstances. Um, the data and the results have kind of clearly shown Toronto came back in game two, game three, and game four with their specific game plan, controlling the play, making sure that they generated more offensive scoring chances and tried to limit as much as they possibly could. The limitation of shots and scoring chances has been a, a key key element to this entire series. Montreal's inability to really gain a lot of offensive zone time, they don't seem to have a lot of offensive zone time. They aren't able to just draw penalties using their offensive zone time. Their rush opportunities have been pretty good, but they aren't generating a lot of uh, results. So in the end, the game plan that Montreal's trying to portray here and, and think that they can be competitive against a team that has so much offensive power is really not working overall. So the reliance on Carey Price and some elements of their defensive game um, is eventually going to come back to bite them, and that's probably going to be in Game 5. I mean, there, there is a pattern. I, I would suggest to you that it, the, the Leafs go to work in the second period, and they do it in three different games differently. But Coach Sheldon keeps it after the win last night on um, Tuesday night that he looks at the first period as sort of a, a feeling out and seeing what's there, and they do purposely – go after them in the second period and maintain in the third. Now, I, I'm just going to go into my notes. If you looked at the last two third periods and the shots on goal, where do I have that? Uh, I can't find it. It's it's high. It goes, it's ridiculous. It's, oh, there it is. It's, it's 29-6. Montreal outshoots the Leafs in the last two third periods. Now, if you looked at that alone, you'd say they're swamped. They're lucky to win those games. Not so much. Those, those shots more so in the game uh, last night, uh, went, uh, Tuesday night, uh, you know, those are shots the goalie can see. Those, those are not dangerous opportunities. Yeah, you have to do something similar to what like Galchenyuk did last night with Jason Spezza, where he actually just sends a puck into the area. Jason Spezza has his stick there and it deflects. You're not going to beat Carey Price with clean shots, especially if he does have a clean look. Yeah. Um, to your point, when I look at their charts, their shift charts, um, you can kind of see that the Leafs' momentum starts to build after the 10 or 12-minute mark of the first period. So it's almost as if they say, withstand and and just maintain, let Montreal do whatever they're going to do physically and if they want to intimidate and try to get an established forecheck, et cetera, et cetera. Once all that starts to kind of dissipate and the initial excitement of the game seems to kind of uh, dwindle, um, the Leafs consistently take over. They kind of let their guard down a little bit in the third period, I think, last night. I think they let their guard down a little bit even in game, uh, game three. Um, 
I don't, I don't mind that because of the competition that they're facing. So it's not like Montreal is an offensive powerhouse and they're able to generate a lot of scoring chances. But if you continue to do this and you, you force a team to just play defensively because they have the lead, that's going to end up being a problem later on in a different playoff round. So they can get away with doing that here in, uh, against Montreal and they can counter what Montreal's trying to do in the third period once they start getting back. Um, but they're not going to have that kind of same success moving forward. So it's something that I'm I'm happy to see in this round. I'm not essentially happy to see it filtering through because it could potentially be a problem somewhere down the road. Well, certainly against the Jets. The Jets the Jets live on that stuff. But, but having said that, I mean, this is a team, if you just took it for this round and didn't project it forward, this is a team that you would describe as uh, they see what the other team has, adjusts, takes advantage of it, and wins. Uh, that means they could play the game however you want to play and still prevail. And, and that's a pretty good hockey team that does that. Because I think when you're talking about a Stanley Cup winner, you're talking about a team that looks at the other side and goes, oh, they're going to do that. Okay, we we have the counter for that. Here's how you win. That's a pretty good description of a Stanley Cup winner, isn't it? Yeah, that's it exactly. If you're able to counter the team's um, initial tactics and you're able to figure out a way to just kind of either use them against them, because that's also what Toronto's kind of done as well, right? Those those elements where they end up turning back the other way. Um, if Toronto rushes back the other way too, now they got to scramble into a defensive position that they're not ready for. So the 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 prime um, message that I would give from a coaching perspective for Toronto is kind of exactly what you did. You look at how that other team plays. How do you break their systems? So for a lot of amateurs and a lot of Twitter hobbyists and all this stuff, it's really easy to kind of spot patterns you can kind of see how teams play it's a lot more difficult to break through those patterns so that's where the coaching staff has to come into play and say okay montreal likes to pack it tightly in the middle we're going to be able to circle them but we need to get into the middle to score goals how do we do that so finding the solutions to break through their defensive strongholds are what coaching is going to have to bring out the players themselves are just going to end up using their skills that they have currently available that they have been using all season long really focusing on offensive uh, uh, scoring and, 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 and scoring chance generation. Um, and I think even against Winnipeg, under the assumption that they beat Montreal, which would probably be a good assumption, um, they're going to struggle a little bit from the heavier workload that the Jets forwards are going to be giving them. Yeah. But the Jets' defense isn't going to be the same as Montreal's defense. So now the situation changes. The coaching staff is going to have to find ways to break the Jets' offense, break through a Vezina eligible goaltender um, right. with a weak defense. So the, it, it's interesting how a lot of these um, equations kind of change over the course of one series to another. Let's just see how the Leafs can, are, are able to adapt. Well, you referred several times to the coaching staff. And, you know, as, as we could applaud the roster, and there's there's a couple guys I'm going to zero in on later, but we have to applaud the coaching staff because it's remarkably uh, better than it was in the, uh, the play-in round against Columbus. Well, I mean, they're – they should have learned a lot of lessons at the same time. Keith was kind of um, just thrown into the wolves last year in a situation where, you know, Babcock's gone. Okay. This is your team. These are your assets. How do you do what you want to do? So essentially he was working with a template of the players that he was given under the circumstances of, of where they were last year too. They were not as good defensively. Um, they couldn't rely on goaltending as much as they kind of, tried at least in the previous year so there was a real transitionary period for Sheldon Keefe to try to get through and then at the same time he has to go through a play-in series I can understand the circumstances being a little bit difficult now this year they were able to put together their game plan from 
game one of the regular season. They've been using the same template with some minor adjustments along the way. Um, you can see how much they focus on getting pucks to stars, but being responsible enough defensively to get pucks back when they don't have it. Um, we kind of saw that if their goaltending falters, they could be put into a very, very difficult position where they're going to have to outscore all their troubles. That puts Toronto in a bit of a difficult spot. Um, but from the element of what the coaching staff has been able to implement this season, based on the vision that they had prior, probably prior to uh, uh, the play-in round last year, um, they've been able to implement specific items across the roster so that they're able to seamlessly put in players without having to make a big element of style changes. So Sandin is out, Dermott's in, it was completely seamless. You have John Tavares that's out, Kerfoot steps in, they have players that might be deployed in a different area, but they're still playing the Toronto Maple Leafs style of game, even with the same players that they expected to be their top warriors, not in the lineup. Well, what I like about this team is, and we've talked about it uh, certainly during the regular season, the flexibility of the roster, the depth of the roster. And so what I like is there's two things that I would look for to anoint anybody as a legitimate shot at winning a Stanley Cup. One is what I said earlier about being able to look at how a team plays and adjust and attack it. And, and they've proven they can do that, at least against Montreal. Uh, the other thing is emerging players on the roster. And so when you lose your captain, and then Nick Foligno is the backup for center on that line, and he goes out, and your third option is Kerfoot. When you don't start Galchenyuk in game one, these two guys were on the outside of the picture and have now taken on a starring role in this series. I'm not saying they just they march through the, the, the next round and, and they, are, they are the guys, but in this series, they have found a way to make a major contribution, and then you sprinkle in the Nylander four goals in four games. That's, that's enough there, and that doesn't deal with uh, Marner and Matthews, who have been limited in terms of what they're doing in the score sheet, which is, you know, you know they're going to be Velcroed, and, and that's fine. But when everybody else figures out what to do, when your star players are are sort of tame and, and pushed off to the side of the score sheet, that's an emerging roster. I mean, I just get, when I look at this roster, I could see it, it doing many different things to many different teams. Yeah, there's the, the flexibility of having different players play a similar enough system that you're able to kind of seamlessly play your type of game um, is distinctly a good bonus. It's kind of almost as if uh, Kerfoot and um, um, are kind of like the Gary Robertson and Alan McCauley of uh, right. when did they was that series. Yeah, Galchenyuk. Oh. So yeah. it's like it's like these guys, they knew that they'd have some um, elevated roles, the expectation is going to be higher. And I like the fact that Galchenyuk is able to kind of come in and, and play his type of game. I really wouldn't expect him to be that player consistently through the playoffs. We'd like to think that that's the case, but that's not necessarily so. Um, Kerfoot has always been a bit of a, a, a question mark for me. Um, you could see that there's offensive ability. You could see the yeah. skill at the tip of the blade. There are a lot of questions about whether or not he can kind of handle the game. I think that there's some questions around his hockey IQ, but you put him in a situation where he says, Alex, this is what we expect you to do. He does it. So he's a coachable enough player to be able to kind of put him into different situations and play different roles. And he's not always going to be a center. He's going to be a winger. Sometimes he's going to have to move ahead. And it's just similar to stuff like Joe Thornton, who hasn't really been that great during the playoffs, um, and Jason Spezza moving up and down the lineup. They're used where they're needed. They plug in, they play their style, and they're able to kind of move on with similar results. And at least at this current pace, um, it's the depth that's taken over 
the scoring and the offensive scoring chance generation because of some of the struggles between Matthews and specifically Marner. Mitch Marner has struggled immensely this postseason. Even strength on the power play. The only chance that I think that he's really, really excelled is on the penalty kill, and that's because I think he's had two years worth of training to get him to the position where he is now. Yeah, I mean, at the same time that you want to lead the parade for the Leafs, you know, they're they're up 3-1 in the series as we record this. Uh, We expect that they would win the series. Uh, Here's all I can, you know, to to sort of narrow it down. Here's what I can tell you is that the difference between this team and other Leafs teams that couldn't get through the first round was that the depth that they've added will help them and has helped them in, in a big way to get through this round. After the round's over slate is clean you have to figure out a new way and and if you know if they do advance and it's winnipeg you know you said something different before but but the other difference is down the middle Hmm. winnipeg's pretty thick down the middle montreal is not that that's uh, that's an issue for montreal and always has been so so kerfoot's uh you know success in the first round is fine but it's not something you go to the bank with and polino's not going to be out for the entire run anyway so you know you're able to to adjust the only other thing i'll add about kerfoot is the games that i've done this year when he's on the top six those are his best moments. I don't know why, but he's played really well in the top six. Well, you start putting players in positions where they're playing with skilled, skilled players. You could see that it elevates their game as well, too. One little issue that I still kind of have a little problem with, the Toronto Maple Leafs have generated 77 scoring chances in this series. Montreal has generated 71. It's mm-hmm. not like it's a distinct, big, huge gap between scoring chance generation it's that the Leafs have finished Montreal has not so if they go into Winnipeg and think that they can kind of do the same kind of thing and allow Winnipeg to match them their goaltending is going to falter and then Toronto is going to have to alter their style in order to try to get ahead well look I mean you know the scoreboard's a big factor Montreal has played with the lead for 22 minutes and that's uh, chunks of game one and the early part of game two, and then that's it. So, you know, the, the simple analysis is when you have the lead, there's a lot of things you can do, and when you're chasing, there's a lot of things you have to do. Yeah, like in game uh, game three, it was. I think the third period was just one where they just kind of send, sat back, and I, I, I was afraid that they would do that. There has to be a bit of a killer instinct. Once you have that lead, um, you have to be able to kind of put your foot on the throat of your opponent and say, that's it, we're done. This cost them the series two years ago against Boston. They no. lost game six in a bad, bad, bad way. That should have been a very, very big lesson for them, and I think it kind of was um, just under different management. And now they have to take that point and they have to put that down. We have Montreal down three to one. We have our foot on their throats. We need to be able to just shut everything down, move on, win this game, move on to the next series. But that killer instinct, that killer instinct that they were missing two seasons ago hasn't really shown up yet here this postseason. So it's still something that I'm looking for and I have yet to see it. Well, an opportunity knocks. It's called game five. That's where you want to see it, right? That's exactly it. And if you want to add more incentive, there's going to be fans in the stands in Montreal on game six. So you really want to close this out just to kind of, if these are your rivals and you really want to do maximum damage, you close out the series in game five, send the fans home for the rest of the season. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, when you're doing your analytics, is there any other numbers there that you'd like to pass on? So the we talked a little bit about uh, the scoring chance generation. That 53% is actually pretty huge. Toronto's getting seven goals at five on five. So all the numbers that I'm talking to you about is all at even strength at five on five. But what the biggest issue I think heading into the uh, the playoffs, aside from goaltending, has been the power play. 
Yeah. And what we have seen are much, much better results on the power play. So Toronto's been able to kind of generate three wins, one loss, three goals, one goal against. So they uh, allowed that right. one shorty. So yeah. those three goals, we don't really kind of see. It doesn't sound like a big number, but for Toronto, three goals in these four games over all the power play time that they kind of had, especially with that little grouping in uh, game three, I believe, where they're in the middle of third period, sorry, in the second period where they had three penalties in a row. Toronto has been better on the power play, yeah, but the numbers don't necessarily reflect that they've Agreed. been better on the power play. Yeah. So this is kind of where there's a, a little bit of a disconnect. So I'd like to see that gap close a little bit. They clearly have um, a distinction here where they lead, um, where they generate a lot of scoring chances, but they also put themselves in a position where they can um, give up scoring chances while on the power play. A lot of that has to do with some bad zone entry um, tactics. So hopefully, again, this is Montreal we're talking about, so the transition is based on turnovers at their own blue line. Against other teams, that's not going to be the case. So they have to figure out a way how to get that power play to be more consistent, even though we kind of start seeing some better results from the type of play that they're getting. Yeah, the power play is a threat now. In the past, it was a, it would suck the energy out of the team, but even though it doesn't score, it looks good. And, and by the way, the Montreal power play is zero. Dreadful. Zero. Yeah. yeah, that 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 tells you a lot, right? Special teams yeah. are are a huge, huge part of of uh, your path to winning a Stanley Cup. You need to just not get scored on during a penalty kill or not take penalties. So Toronto, I think, has done a decent enough job trying to limit their penalties. Um, they can get into situations, I think, where they put themselves into uh, a position to to take a must a must take penalty. I'm fine with that. Um, it seems like they're kind of limiting all their off their their discretions away from the offensive zone. So a lot of that is happening in the defensive zone. So if you're going to break down and you're going to give up a scoring chance, take the penalty and deal with it for two minutes. So special teams are still a little bit of a factor here, uh, but they are much better than they were in the regular season. Look, I'm just going to do it again. I always do layman's analysis, the eye test stuff. So uh, when my theory on, on a lot of stuff is uh, when you win, it just works out. And when you lose, it just didn't work out. Not a lot of analysis or criticism required. So with the Leafs up, I think it was 3 nothing, and Brooks takes that penalty. Um, in the past, that would have been a TSN turning point the wrong way. No factor. Leafs go on to win. And it's that simple, isn't it? It absolutely is. It's those little moments within the game that can put uh, – It just we've seen three goals dissipate. I mean, Winnipeg. Uh, in game four against Edmonton. Edmonton seemed to be running away with it. I went to sleep after Chase on scored the 3-2 goal. Okay, they got this. They'll play game five. And then all of a sudden, three overtimes later, and Winnipeg finally wins the series because yeah. they scored three quick goals. Because in today's NHL, it doesn't matter how good or bad your team is. If they put themselves, in, if the team puts themselves in a position to be able to generate more scoring chances, they're going to eventually capitalize. And you can't, can't, can't allow your style to change because of the game score. You need to be able to continuously play that style of game. And then it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, about putting your foot down uh, on your opponent's throat. Once you're able to establish how you want to play this game, that's the game plan that you consistently stick with. There are no TSN turning points. There shouldn't be a penalty that changes the flow of the game. If there is, then that is a coaching issue that has to be addressed. Yeah. And anything else there that you have on your, on your uh, ThinkPad? For my, uh, 
my biggest issue here, or no, my biggest thing from the power play is that they've been able to generate 10 high danger scoring chances. It's something that Toronto wasn't really doing during the regular season. Montreal, yeah. for its limited time on the power play, though, have generated five. Mm-hmm. So they're in a good position because of Toronto's play and some of the inability of Montreal. So there's a nice story to all of this, but there are still warning signs that I think coaching staff definitely needs to address. Okay, so I'm going to create a new term. It's called flip side analysis. Are you ready for this? <laughs> sure. Flip side analysis is if Montreal, if you're a Montreal fan and you look at that power play and you go, it's 0 for 13, if the power play had functioned as efficient as the Leafs, this series would be tied at two. You, or they could have even held the advantage. But again, I think yeah. that the power play is one thing. That's one aspect. And obviously, we need special teams to be good. But Montreal's style at five on five is really limiting, it limits their scoring chances. So, it's nice to think that your special teams would be able to carry you, but if you can't draw penalties because your style of play doesn't allow you to draw it, then you're not going to have power play opportunities. And if you don't have power play opportunities, you're not going to score goals. There's just a, a, a snowball effect to that. So the futility can can really get bad really, really fast if the proper game plan is not set in motion. Gus, really appreciate this. I have to go immediately and contact my trademark lawyer for Flipside Analysis. It's got to be registered. Thanks a lot, buddy. Sounds good to me. Thank you very much. Yes, guy. Last minute of play in this podcast. All right, there is the time warning for my PA announcer, Mike Ross. Let's get to this. Look at these split the Yes Guy, No Guy awards. Number one, Jack Campbell. Oh, yes, guy. Stupendous, confident, tracking the puck. Oh, he's just way ahead of the game. Yes, guy to him. Uh, next stop will be Galchenyuk. Oh, yes, guy. Vintage. Vintage, yes, guy. Um, how about Alex Kerfoot, the number three choice at center in the second line, and a real spark plug, an emphatic, yes, guy. And our last stop will be Jason Spezza, ageless, stupendous. This is an old school, yes, guy. Hope you enjoyed episode 39. Hope you come back for episode 40 of Leafs Guy on Friday.